Section 9 of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kings Malabot First Part Elements of Pure Practical Reason Book 1 The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason Chapter 3 Of the Motives of Pure Practical Reason This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Julie van Malchem What is essential in the moral worth of actions is that a moral law should directly determine the will. If the determination of the will takes place in conformity indeed to the moral law, but only by means of a feeling, no matter of what kind, which has to be presupposed in order that the law may be sufficient to determine the will, and therefore not for the sake of the law, then the action will possess legality, but not morality. Now, if we understand by motive, a later enemy, the subjective grant of determination of the will of a being whose reason does not necessarily conform to the objective law, by virtue of its own nature, then it will follow, first, that not motives can be attributed to the divine will, and that the motives of the human will, as well as that of every created rational being, can never be anything else than the moral law, and consequently that the objective principle of determination must always and alone be also the subjectively sufficient determining principle of the action, if this is not merely to fulfil the letter of the law without containing its spirit. We may say of every action that conforms to the law, but it is not done for the sake of the law, that it is morally good in the letter, not in the spirit, the intention. Since then, for the purpose of giving the moral law influence over the will, we must not seek for any other motives that might enable us to dispense with the motive of the law itself, because that would produce mere hypocrisy without consistency, and it is even dangerous to allow other motives, for instance, that of interest, even to cooperate along with the moral law. Hence, nothing is left us but to determine carefully in what way the moral law becomes motive, and what effect this has upon the faculty of desire. For as to the question how a law can be directly and of itself a determining principle of the will, which is the essence of morality, this is, for human reason, an insoluble problem, and identical with the question how a free will is possible. Therefore, what we have to show a priori is not why the moral law in itself supplies a motive, but what effect it, as such, produces, or, more correctly speaking, must produce on the mind. The essential point in every determination of the will by the moral law is that, that being a free will, it is determined simply by the moral law, not only without the cooperation of sensible impulses, but even to the reaction of all such, and to the checking of all inclinations, so far as they might be opposed to that law. So far, then, the effect of the moral law as a motive is only negative, and this motive can be known a priori to be such. For all inclination and every sensible impulse is founded on feeling, and the negative effect produced on feeling, by the check on the inclinations, is itself feeling. Consequently, we can see a priori that a moral law as a determining principle of the will must, by thwarting all our inclinations, 
produce a feeling which may be called pain, and in this we have the first, perhaps the only instance in which we are able from a priori considerations, to determine the relation of a cognition, in this case of pure practical reason, to the feeling of pleasure or displeasure. All the inclinations together, which can be reduced to a tolerable system, in which case the satisfaction is called happiness, constitute self-regard, solipsismus. This is either the self-love that consists in an excessive fondness for oneself, philosia, or satisfaction with oneself, arrogantia. The former is called particularly selfishness, the latter self-conceit. Pure practical reason only checks selfishness, looking on it as natural and active in us even prior to the moral law, so far as to limit it to the condition of agreement with this law, and then it is called rational self-love. But self-conceit, reason strikes down altogether, since all claims to self-esteem which precede agreement with the moral law are vain and unjustifiable. For the certainty of a state of mind that coincides with this law is a first condition of personal worth, as we shall presently show more clearly. And prior to this conformity, any pretensions to worth is false and unlawful. Now, the propensity to self-esteem is one of the inclinations which the moral law checks, inasmuch as if that esteem rests only on morality. And therefore, the moral law breaks down self-conceit. But as if this law is something positive in itself, namely the form of an intellectual casualty, that is, of freedom, it must be an object of respect, for by opposing the subjective antagonism of the inclinations, it weakens self-conceit, and since it even breaks down, that is, humiliates, this conceit, it is an object of the highest respect, and consequently is a foundation of a positive feeling which is not of empirical origin, but is known a priori. Therefore, respect for the moral law is a feeling which is produced by an intellectual cause, and this feeling is the only one that we know quite a priori, and the necessity of which we can perceive. In the preceding chapter we have seen that everything that presents itself as an object of the will prior to the moral law is by that law itself, which is a supreme condition of practical reason, excluded from the determining principles of the will which we have called the unconditionally good, and that a mere practical form, which consists in the adaptation of the maxims to universal legislation, first determines what is good in itself and absolutely, and is the basis of the maxims of a pure will, which alone is good in every respect. However, we find that our nature as sensible beings is such that a matter of desire, objects of inclination, whether of hope or fear, first presents itself to us, and our pathologically affected self, although it is in its maxims quite unfit for universal legislation, yet just as if it constituted our entire self, strives to put its pretensions forward first, and to have them acknowledged as the first and original. This propensity to make ourselves in the subjective determining principles of our choice serve as the objective determining principle of the will generally may be called self-love, and if this pretends to be legislative as an unconditional practical principle, it may be called self-conceit. Now the moral law, which alone is truly objective, 
namely in every respect, entirely excludes the influence of self-love on the supreme practical principle, and indefinitely checks the self-conceit that prescribes the subjective conditions of the former as laws. Now whatever checks our self-conceit in our judgment humiliates, therefore the moral law inevitably humbles every man when he compares with it the physical propensities of his nature. That, the idea of which as a determining principle of our will humbles us in our self-consciousness, awakes respect for itself, so far as it is itself positive and a determining principle. Therefore, the moral law is even subjectively a cause of respect. Now, since everything that enters into self-love belongs to inclination, and all inclination rests on feelings, and consequently whatever checks all the feelings together in self-love has necessarily, by this very circumstance, an influence on feeling. Hence we comprehend how it is possible to perceive a priori that a moral law can produce an effect on feeling, and that it excludes the inclinations and the, the propensity to make them the supreme practical condition, it est, self-love, from all participation in the supreme legislation. This effect is on one side merely negative, but on the other side, relatively to the restricting principle of pure practical reason, it is positive. No special kind of feeling need be assumed for this under the name of a practical or moral feeling as antecedent to the moral law and serving as its foundation. The negative effect on feeling and pleasantness is pathological, like every influence on feeling and like every feeling generally but as an effect of the consciousness of the moral law, and consequently in relation to a supersensible cause, namely the subject of pure practical reason, which is the supreme lawgiver, this feeling of a rational being affected by inclinations is called humiliation, intellectual self-depreciation. But with reference to this positive source of this humiliation, the law, it is respect for it. There is indeed no feeling for this law, but inasmuch as it removes the resistance out of the way, this removal of an obstacle is, in the judgment of reason, esteemed equivalent to a positive help to its causality. Therefore, this feeling may also be called a feeling of respect for the moral law, and for both reasons together a moral feeling. While the moral law, therefore, is a formal determining principle of action by practical pure reason, and is moreover a material, though only objective determining principle of the object of action as called good and evil, it is also a subjective determining principle, that is, a motive to this action, inasmuch as it has influence on the morality of the subject, and produces a feeling conducive to the influence of the law on the will. There is here in the subject no antecedent feeling tending to morality. For this is impossible, since every feeling is sensible, and the motive of moral intention must be free from all sensible conditions. On the contrary, while the sensible feeling which is at the bottom of all our inclinations is a condition of that impression which we call respect, the cause that determines it lies in the pure practical reason, and this impression therefore, on account of its origin, must be called not a pathological but a practical effect. For by the fact that the conception of the moral law deprives self-love of its influence and self-conceit of its illusion, it lessens the obstacle to pure practical reason 
and produces the conception of the superiority of its subjective law to the impulses of the sensibility and thus by removing the counterpoise it gives a relatively greater weight to the law in the judgment of reason in the case of a will affected by the aforesaid impulses thus the respect for the law is not a motive to morality what is morality itself subjectively considered as a motive inasmuch as pure practical reason by rejecting all the rival pretensions of self-love gives authority to the law which now alone has influence now it is to be observed that as respect is an effect on feeling and therefore on the sensibility of a rational being it presupposes this sensibility and therefore also the finiteness of such beings on whom the moral law imposes respect and that respect for the law cannot be attributed to a supreme being or to any being free from all sensibility in whom therefore the sensibility cannot be an obstacle to practical reason this feeling which we call the moral feeling is therefore produced simply by reason it does not serve for the estimation of actions nor for the foundation of the objective moral law itself but merely as a motive to make this of itself a maxim. But what name could we more suitably apply to this singular feeling, which cannot be compared to any pathological feeling? It is of such a peculiar kind, that it seems to be at the disposal of reason only, and that pure practical reason. Respect applies always to persons only, not to things. The latter may arouse inclination, and if they are animals— example horses dogs etc even laugh or fear like the sea a volcano a beast of prey but never respect something that comes nearer to this feeling is admiration and this as an affection astonishment can apply to things also example lofty mountains the magnitude number and distance of the heavenly bodies the strength and swiftness of many animals etc but all this is not respect a man also may be an object to me of love fear or admiration even to astonishment and yet not be an object of respect his jocose humour his courage and strength his power from the rank he has amongst others may inspire me with the sentiments of this kind but still inner respect for him is wanting fontenelle says i bow before a great man but my mind does not bow I would add, before an humble plain man, in whom I perceive a brightness of character in a higher degree than I am conscious of in myself, my mind bows whether I choose it or not, and so I bear my head never so high that he may not forget my superior rank. Why is it this? Because this example exhibits to me a law that humbles my self-conceit when I compare it with my conduct. A law, the practicability of obedience to which I see proved by fact before my eyes. Now, I may even be conscious of a like degree of uprightness, and yet the respect remains. For since in man all good is effective, the law made visible by an example still humbles my pride, my standard being furnished by a man whose imperfections, whatever they may be, are not known to me as my own are, and who, therefore, appears to me in a more favourable light. Respect is a tribute which we cannot refuse to merit, whether we will or not. We may indeed outwardly withhold it, but we cannot help feeling it inwardly. Respect is so far from being a feeling of pleasure 
that we only reluctantly give way to it as regards a man. We try to find out something that may lighten the burden of it, some fault to compensate us for the humiliation which such an example causes. Even the dead are not always secure from this criticism, especially if their example appears inimitable. Even the moral law itself, in its solemn majesty, is exposed to this endeavour to save oneself from yielding its respect. Can it be thought that it is for any other reason that we are so ready to reduce it to the level of our familiar inclination, or that it is for any other reason that we all take such trouble to make it out to be the chosen precept of our own interest well understood, but that we want to be free from the deterrent respect which shows us our own unworthiness with such severity? Nevertheless, on the other hand, so little is a pain in it, that if once one had laid aside self-conceit, and allowed practical inference to that respect, he can never be satisfied with contemplating the majesty of this law, and the soul believes itself elevated in proportion, as it sees the holy law elevated above it and its frail nature. No doubt great talents and activity in proportion to them may also occasion respect, or an analogous feeling. It is very proper to yield it to them and then it appears as if the sentiment were the same thing as admiration. But if we look closer, we shall observe that it is always uncertain how much of the ability is due to native talent, and how much to diligence in cultivating it. Reason represents it to us as probably the fruit of cultivation, and therefore as meritorious, and this notably reduces our self-conceit, and either casts a reproach on us, or urges us to follow such an example in the way that is suitable to us. This respect, then, which we show to such a person, properly speaking to the law that his example exhibits, is not mere admiration, and this is confirmed also by the fact that when the common run of admirers think they have learned from any source the badness of such a man's character, for instance Voltaire's, they give up all respect for him whereas the true scholar still feels it at least with regard to his talents, because he is himself engaged in a business and a vocation which make imitation of such a man in some degree a law. Respect for the moral law is, therefore, the only and the undoubted moral motive, and this feeling is directed to no object except on the ground of this law. The moral law first determines the will objectively and directly in the judgment of reason, and freedom, whose causality can be determined only by the law, consists just in this, that it restricts all inclinations and consequently self-esteem, by the condition of obedience to its pure law. This restriction now has an effect on feeling, and produces the impression of displeasure, which can be known a priori from the moral law. Since it is so far only a negative effect which, arising from the influence of pure practical reason, checks in the activity of this subject, so far as it is determined by inclinations, and hence checks the opinion of his personal worth, which, in the absence of agreement with the moral law, is reduced to nothing, hence the effect of this law on feeling is merely humiliation. We can therefore perceive this a priori, but cannot know by it the force of the pure practical law as a motive, but only the resistance to motives of the sensibility. But since the same law is objectively, that is, in the conception of pure reason, 
an immediate principle of determination of the will, and consequently, if this humiliation takes place only relatively to the purity of the law, hence the lowering of the pretensions of moral self-esteem, such as humiliation on the sensible side, is an elevation of the moral, it is, practical esteem, for the law itself on the intellectual side. In a word, it is respect for the law, and therefore, as its cause is intellectual, a positive feeling which can be known a priori. For whatever diminishes the obstacles to an activity furthers this activity itself. Now, the recognition of the moral law is a consciousness of an activity of practical reason from objective principles, which only fails to reveal its effect in actions, because subjective, pathological causes hinder it. Respect for the moral law, then, must be regarded as a positive, though indirect, effect of it on feeling, inasmuch as in this respect weakens the impeding influence of inclinations by humiliating self-esteem, and hence also as a subjective principle of activity, that is, as a motive to obedience to the law, and as a principle of the maxims of a life conformable to it. From the notion of motive arises that of an interest which can never be attributed to any being unless it possesses reason, and which signifies a motive of the will in so far as it is conceived by the reason. Since in a morally good will the law itself must be the motive, the moral interest is a pure interest of practical reason alone, independent of sense. On the notion of an interest is based that of a maxim. This, therefore, is morally good only in case it rests simply on the interest taken in obedience to the law. All three notions, however, that of a motive, of an interest, and of a maxim, can be applied only to finite beings. For they all suppose a limitation of the nature of the being, and that the subjective character of his choice does not of itself agree with the objective law of a practical reason. They suppose that being requires to be impelled to action by something, because an internal obstacle opposes itself. Therefore, they cannot be applied to the divine will. There is something so singular in the embowed esteem for the pure moral law, apart from moral advantage, as it is presented for our obedience by practical reason, the voice of which makes even the boldest sinner tremble and compels him to hide himself from it, that we cannot wonder if we find this influence of a mere intellectual idea on the feelings quite incomprehensible to speculative reason, and have to be satisfied with seeing so much of this a priori that such a feeling is inseparably connected with the conception of the moral law in every finite rational being. If this feeling of respect were pathological, and therefore were a feeling of pleasure based on the inner sense, it would be in vain to try to discover a connection of it with any idea a priori. But it is a feeling that applies merely to what is practical, and depends on the conception of a law simply as to its form, not on account of any object, and therefore cannot be reckoned either as pleasure or pain, and yet produces an interest in obedience to the law which we call the moral interest, just as the capacity of taking such an interest in the law, or respect for the moral law itself, is properly the moral feeling. The consciousness of a free submission of the will to the law, yet combined with an inevitable constraint put upon all inclinations, though only by our own reason, 
is respect for the law. The law that demands this respect and inspires it is clearly no other than the moral, for no other precludes all inclinations from exercising any direct influence on the will. An action which is objectively practical, according to this law, to the exclusion of every determining principle of inclination, is duty, and this by reason of that exclusion includes in its concept practical obligation, that is, a determination to actions, however reluctantly they may be done. The feeling that arises from the consciousness of this obligation is not pathological, as would be a feeling produced by an object of the senses, but practical only, that is, it is made possible by a preceding objective determination of the will and a causality of the reason. A submission to the law, therefore, that is, as a command, announcing constraint for the sensibly affected subject, it contains in it no pleasure but on the contrary, so far, pain in the action. On the other hand, however, as its constraint is exercised merely by legislation of our own reason, it also contains something elevating, and this subjective effect on feeling, inasmuch as pure practical reason is the sole cause of it, may be called in this respect self-approbation, since we recognize ourselves as determined thereto solely by the law without any interest, and are now conscious of a quite different interest subjectively produced thereby, and which is purely practical and free. And our taking this interest in an action of duty is not suggested by any inclination, but is commanded and actually brought about by reason through the practical law, whence this feeling obtains a special name, that of respect. The notion of duty, therefore, requires in the action objectively agreement with the law, and subjectively in its maxim, that respect for the law shall be the sole mode in which the will is determined thereby. And on this rests the distinction between the consciousness of having acted according to duty and from duty, that is, from respect for the law. The former, legality, is possible even if inclinations have been the determining principles of the will, but the latter, morality, moral worth, can be placed only in this, that the action is done from duty, that is, simply for the sake of the law. If we examine accurately the notion of respect for persons, as it has been already laid down, we shall perceive that it always rests on the consciousness of a duty which an example shows us, and that respect, therefore, can never have any but a moral ground, that it is very good and even, in a psychological point of view, very useful for the knowledge of mankind, that whenever we use this expression, we should attend to the secret and marvellous, yet often recurring regard, which men in their judgment pay to the moral law. It is of the greatest importance to attend with the utmost exactness in all moral judgments, to the subjective principle of all maxims, that all the morality of actions may be placed in the necessity of acting from duty and from respect for the law, not from love and inclination for that which the actions are to produce. For men and all created rational beings, moral necessity is constraint, that is, obligation, and every action based on it is to be conceived as a duty, not as a proceeding previously pleasing or likely to be pleasing to us of our own accord, 
as if indeed we could ever bring it about, that without respect for the law which implies fear, or at least apprehension of transgression, we of ourselves, like the independent deity, could ever come into possession of holiness of will by the coincidence of our will with the pure moral law becoming as it were part of our nature, never to be shaken, in which case the law would cease to be command for us, as we could never be tempted to be untrue to it. The moral law is in fact for the will of a perfect being a law of holiness, but for the will of every finite rational being a law of duty, of moral constraint, and of the determination of its actions by respect for this law and reverence for its duty. No other subjective principle must be assumed as motive. Else, while the action might chance to be such as law prescribes, yet, as does not proceed from duty, the intention, which is the thing properly in question in this legislation, is not moral. It is a very beautiful thing to do good to men from love to them, and from sympathetic good will, or to be just from love of order. But this is not yet the true moral maxim of our conduct, which is suitable to our position amongst rational beings as men, when we pretend with fanciful pride to set ourselves above the thought of duty, like volunteers, and as if we were independent on the command, to want to do of our own good pleasure what we think we need no command to do. We stand under a discipline of reason, and in all our maxims must not forget our subjection to it, nor withdraw anything therefrom, or by an egotistic presumption diminish aught of the authority of the law, although our own reason gives it, so as to set the determining principle of our will, even though the law be conformed to, anywhere else but in the law itself, and in respect for this law. Duty and obligation are the only names that we must give to our relation to the moral law. We are indeed legislative members of a moral kingdom rendered possible by freedom, and presented to us by reason as an object of respect but yet we are subjects in it, not the sovereign, and to mistake our inferior position as creatures, and presumptuously to reject the authority of the moral law, is already to revolt from it in spirit, even though the letter of it is fulfilled. With this agrees very well the possibility of such a command as, Love God above everything, and thy neighbour as thyself. For as a command, it requires respect for a law which commands love, and does not leave it to our own arbitrary choice to make this our principle. Love to God, however, considered as an inclination, pathological love, is impossible, for he is not an object of the senses. The same affection towards men is possible, no doubt, but cannot be commanded, for it is not in the power of any man to love any one at command. Therefore, it is only practical love that is meant in that pith of all laws. To love God means, in this sense, to like to do His commandments. To love one's neighbour means to like to practice all duties towards Him. But the command that makes this a rule cannot command us to have this disposition in actions conform to duty, but only to endeavour after it. For a command to like to do a thing is in itself contradictory. Because, if we already know of ourselves what we are bound to do, and if further we are conscious of liking to do it, a command would be quite needless, and if we do it not willingly, but only out of respect for the law, a command that makes in this respect the motive of our maxim 
would directly counteract the disposition commanded. That law of all laws, therefore, like all the moral precepts of the gospel, exhibits the moral disposition in all its perfection, in which, viewed as an ideal of holiness, it is not attainable by any creature, but yet is the pattern which we should strive to approach, and in an uninterrupted but infinite progress become like to. In fact, if a rational creature could ever reach this point, that he thoroughly likes to do all moral laws, this would mean that there does not exist in him even the possibility of a desire that would tempt him to deviate from them, for to overcome such a desire always costs the subject some sacrifice, and therefore requires self-compulsion, that is, inward constraint to something that one does not quite like to do and no creature can ever reach this stage of moral disposition. For, being a creature, and therefore always dependent with respect to what he requires for complete satisfaction, he can never be quite free from desires and inclinations, and as these rest on physical causes, they can never of themselves coincide with the moral law, the sources of which are quite different, and therefore they make it necessary to found the mental disposition of one's maxims on moral obligation, not on ready inclination, but on respect, which demands obedience to the law, even though one may not like it, not on love, which apprehends no inward reluctance of the will towards the law. Nevertheless, this latter, namely love to the law, which would then cease to be a command, and then morality, which would have passed subjectively into holiness, would cease to be virtue, must be the constant though unattainable goal of these endeavours, for in the case of what we highly esteem, but yet, on account of the consciousness of our weakness, dread, the increased facility of satisfying it, changes the most reverential awe into inclination, and respect into love. At least this would be the perfection of a disposition devoted to the law, if it were possible for a creature to attain it. This law is in striking contrast with the principle of private happiness which some make the supreme principle of morality. This would be expressed thus, Love thyself above everything, and God and thy neighbour for thine own sake. This reflection is intended not so much to clear up the evangelical command just cited, in order to prevent religious fanaticism in regard to love of God, but to define accurately the moral disposition with regard directly to our duties towards men, and to check, or if possible prevent, a merely moral fanaticism which affects many persons. The stage of morality on which man, and, as far as we can see, every rational creature stands, is respect for the moral law. The disposition that he ought to have in obeying this is to obey it from duty, not from spontaneous inclination, or from an endeavour taken up from lacking and unbidden. And this proper moral condition, in which he can always be, is virtue. That is, moral disposition militant, and not holiness in the fancied possession of a perfect purity of the disposition of the will. It is nothing but moral fanaticism and exaggerated self-conceit that is infused into the mind by exhortation to actions as noble, sublime, and magnanimous, by which men are led into the delusion that it is not duty, that is, respect for the law, 
whose yoke, an easy yoke indeed, because reason itself imposed it on us, they must bear, whether they like it or not, that constitutes the determining principle of their actions, and which always humbles them while they obey it, fancying that those actions are expected from them, not from duty, but as pure merit. For not only would they, in imitating such deeds from such a principle, not have fulfilled the spirit of the law in the least, which consists not in the legality of the action without regard to principle, but in the subjection of the mind to the law, not only do they make the motives pathological, seated in sympathy or self-love, not moral, in the law, but they produce in this way a vain, high-flying, fantastic way of thinking, flattering themselves with the spontaneous goodness of heart that needs neither spur nor bridle, for which no command is needed, and thereby forgetting their obligation, which they ought to think of rather than merit. Indeed, actions of others which are done with great sacrifice and merely for the sake of duty may be praised as noble and sublime, but only so far as if there are traces which suggest that they were done wholly out of respect for duty, and not from excited feelings. If these, however, are set before any one as examples to be imitated, respect for duty, which is the only true moral feeling, must be employed as the motive. This severe holy precept, which never allows our vain self-love to dally with pathological impulses, however analogous they may be to morality, and to take a pride a meritorious worth. Now, if we search, we shall find for all actions that are worthy of praise a law of duty which commands, and does not leave us to choose what may be agreeable to our inclinations. This is the only way of representing things that can give a moral training to the soul, because it alone is capable of solid and accurately defined principles. If fanaticism, in its most general sense, is a deliberate overstepping of the limits of human reason, then moral fanaticisms is such an overstepping of the bounds that practical pure reason sets to mankind, and that it forbids us to place the subjective determining principle of correct actions, that is, their moral motive, in anything but the law itself, or to place the disposition which is thereby brought into the maxims in anything but respect for this law, and hence commands us to take as the supreme vital principle of all morality in men the thought of duty, which strikes down all arrogance as well as vain self-love. If this is so, it is not only writers of romance, or sentimental educators, although they may be zealous opponents of sentimentalisms, but sometimes even philosophers, nay, even the severest of all, the Stoics, that have brought in moral fanaticism instead of a sober but wise moral discipline, although the fanaticism of the latter was more heroic, set of the form of an insipid, effeminate character. And we may, without hypocrisy, say of the moral teaching of the gospel, set it first by the purity of its moral principle, and, at the same time, by its suitability to the limitations of finite beings, brought all the good conduct of men, under the discipline of a duty, plainly set before their eyes, which does not permit them to indulge in dreams of imaginary moral perfections, and that it also set the bounds of humility, that is, self-knowledge, to self-conceit, as well as to self-love, 
both which are ready to mistake their limits. Duty, thou sublime and mighty name, that dost embrace nothing charming or insinuating, but requirest submission, and yet seekest not to move the will by threatening aught that would arise natural aversion or terror, but merely holdest forth a law which of itself finds entrance into the mind, and yet gains reluctant reverence, though not always obedience, a law before which all inclinations are dumb, even though they secretly can't work it. What origin is there worthy of thee, and where is to be found the root of thy noble descent, which proudly rejects all kindred with the inclinations, a root to be derived from which is the indispensable condition of the only worth which men can give themselves? It can be nothing less than a power which elevates men above himself, as a part of the world of sense, a power which connects him with an order of things that only the understanding can conceive, with a world which at the same time commands the whole sensible world, and with it the empirically determinable existence of man in time, as well as the sum total of all lands, which totality alone suits such unconditional practical laws as a moral. This power is nothing but personality, that is, freedom and independence of the mechanism of nature, yet regarded also as a faculty of a being which is subject to special laws, namely pure practical laws given by its own reason, so that the person, as belonging to the sensible world, is subject to his own personality as belonging to the intelligible, supersensible world. It is, then, not to be wondered at, that men, as belonging to both worlds, must regard his own nature, in reference to its second and highest characteristic only with reverence, and its laws with the highest respect. On this origin are founded many expressions which designate the worth of objects according to moral ideas. The moral law is holy, inviolable. Man is, indeed, unholy enough, but he must regard humanity in his own person as holy. In all creation, everything one chooses, and over which one has any power, may be used merely as means. Man alone, and with him every rational creature, is an end in himself. By virtue of the autonomy of his freedom, he is the subject of the moral law, which is holy. Just for this reason, every will, even every person's own individual will, in relation to itself, is restricted to the condition of agreement with the autonomy of the rational being. That is to say, that it is not to be subject to any purpose which cannot accord with the law which might arise from the will of the passive subject himself. The latter is, therefore, never to be employed merely as means, but as itself also, concurrently, an end. We justly, we justly attribute this condition even to the divine will, with regard to the rational beings in the world, which are his creatures, since it rests on their personality, by which alone they are ends in themselves. This respect-inspiring idea of personality, which sets before our eyes the sublimity of our nature, in its higher aspect, while at the same time it shows us the want of accord of our conduct with it, and thereby strikes down self-conceit, is even natural to the commonest reason and easily observed. 
has not every, even moderately honourable man, sometimes found that, where by an otherwise inoffensive lie he might either have withdrawn himself from an unpleasant business, or even have procured some advantages for a loved and well-deserving friend, he has avoided it, solely lest he should despise himself secretly in his own eyes? When an upright man is in the greatest distress, which he might have avoided, if he could only have disregarded duty, is he not sustained by the consciousness that he has maintained humanity in its proper dignity in his own person, and honoured it, that he has no reason to be ashamed of himself in his own sight, or to dread the inward glance of self-examination? This consolation is not happiness. It is not even the smallest part of it, for no one would wish to have occasion for it, or would perhaps even desire a life in such circumstances. But he lives, and he cannot endure that he should be in his own eyes unworthy of life. This inward peace is, therefore, merely negative as regards what can make life pleasant. It is, in fact, only the escaping the danger of sinking in personal worse, after everything else that is valuable has been lost. It is the effect of a respect for something quite different from life, something in comparison and contrast with which life, with all its enjoyment, has no value. He still lives only because it is his duty, not because he finds anything pleasant in life. Such is the nature of the true motive of pure practical reason. It is no other than the pure moral law itself, inasmuch as it makes us conscious of the sublimity of our own supersensible existence, and subjectively produces respect for the higher nature in men, who are also conscious of their sensible existence, and of the consequent dependence of their pathologically very susceptible nature. Now with this motive may be combined so many charms and satisfactions of life, that even on this account alone, the most prudent choice of a rational Epicurean, reflecting on the greatest advantage of life, would declare itself on the side of moral conduct, and it may be even advisable to join this prospect of a cheerful enjoyment of life with that supreme motive which is already sufficient of itself, but only as a counterpoise to the attractions which vice does not fail to exhibit on the opposite side, and not so as, even in the smallest degree, to place in this the proper moving power when duty is in question. For that would be just the same as to wish to taint the purity of the moral disposition in its source. The majesty of duty has nothing to do with the enjoyment of life. It has its special law and its special tribunal, and though the two should never be so well shaken together to be given well mixed like medicine to the sick soul, yet they will soon separate of themselves, and if they do not, the former will not act, and although physical life might gain somewhat in force, the moral life would fade away irrecoverably. End of section 9